O Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and thank you for what we have already been able to sing and read and pray and ask that you would continually fill us up as we have much left in our souls that needs filling. Fill us now with your spirit, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know if any of you have had this happen to you where somebody tells you their name and you go, oh, that's interesting, where did you get that name? And then they say, well, it's from the Bible. And you go, oh, yes, of course. Uh, that happened to me once in Manchester. A young girl said her name was Hepzibah. And I said, that's a strange name. Where did you get that? And she says, it's from Isaiah. I said, oh, yes, Isaiah in the Bible, right? And uh, you then go and check for it in a moment of alarm when you get home. And we have uh, Jejithan, uh, to whom the choirmaster uh, is speaking, to the choirmaster according to Jejithan. But it's a psalm of David. So Jejithan puts the psalm, uh, you see this in First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 41. He's one of uh, the choirmasters of David. It's one of the musicians and puts the the psalm to music so that they can sing this psalm. And I was actually told uh, at the end of preaching this morning that uh, the Heinrich, Sheena and Vern, they walked down the aisle to this psalm. I says, I can't believe that this would be a wedding psalm. But there you have it. Uh, there you have it, indeed. And um, this would be put to music. But more importantly, this psalm is actually put to David's life. So you can have a psalm that is put to music, but really the psalm is put to David's life. When I was a young boy, I would walk past properties and there would be signs sometimes, you know, all trespassers will be, I used to think it was persecuted, um, but I think it was prosecuted. And at one time I actually thought that meant electrocuted, uh, Developing vocabulary, you know, as a young man, might have been 18 or 19, I forget. But you were basically told to stay out. And in South Africa, there was pictures of dogs and all sorts of other things to keep you out. Well, David's psalms are kind of a public property. Don't stay out, but come in and, and see what my life is all about. Uh, we know that some of you are more private people. You are not likely candidates for writing a public psalm of all your troubles in life. Right, some of you? You know who you are. You keep things to yourself. You private. Nobody needs to know all your business. David is a little bit different. You see, David is like, well, everybody, I've got a few problems and I'm going to tell you about them. Here they are. Uh, this is what has happened to me. This is what is happening to me. This is what is probably going to happen to me. And you know what about David I like is he isn't content with one psalm about his problems. I mean, think about it. This man is a maniac. He's written dozens and dozens of psalms about his troubles. And this is actually meant to give you some comfort that your life is not actually all that crazy. You know how you grow up, some of us, thinking, wow, I live in a crazy family. No other family can be as crazy as mine. And then you spend time with another family and think, actually, this is nice. 
They too are crazy. There are two crazy families in the world. And you go on and on and realize there are crazies everywhere. Some do keep it together. But David goes from one traumatic experience to another, from one problem to another. And here we have an example where David is in a perilous situation and he responds to it. But the way in which he responds in verse 1 is most interesting because he doesn't actually respond by immediately rushing into his problems. Rather, he says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And I'm not going to spend as much time on every verse, but this one is crucial to the rest of the psalm. Why? Because David has learned the art here, it looks like, especially as we see he picks this same theme back up in verse 5. David knows what it is to wait upon the Lord, to be receptive to what does the Lord have to say to David. And if David didn't wait upon the Lord, he wouldn't have written everything that follows in the way that we read. I assume that if he had rushed in and just started writing down, the psalm would look very different than what we see here. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. And I suspect many of us do not understand what it is to wait upon God in any degree of silence. Many of us don't even know what it is to live in silence. Many of us are horrified at the thought that we might have to think about our lives for a while. So now you have distractions galore, everywhere and anywhere. You can be looking at something, listening to something, doing something, and you do not know what it is to sit in silence, much less even wait upon the Lord in silence. David waits for God alone in silence. And notice how he describes God. So if he's waiting for God in silence, look at the words that come out of his mouth. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. When he waits for God, he develops a clear picture of God. And this God is his rock and his salvation, his fortress. David needs to build up confidence in God because he is in a perilous situation. And he does actually say here, I shall not be greatly shaken, which means he will be shaken at this point a little. I will not be greatly shaken means I will not be tossed to and fro like this, but it does actually mean he could be shaken a little bit. Does that mean He's arrived at the place he needs to be. You'll see as we read on, that's not in fact the case. But he does say, because God is my rock, is my salvation, is my fortress, he will not be greatly shaken. Now here's his problem. While he is confident in God, he is not so confident in those around him. How long will all of you, this is plural now, there's not just one person, it's not just Absalom, it's not just Ahithophel. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. What you find here is that David is describing himself in the midst of his enemies. He is like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. And you know, a wall that leans is uh, not a good wall. 
it's not good to be a leaning wall. And the irony of this psalm is that David is this leaning wall, this tottering fence that is being attacked. And actually what you find by the end is that David and his enemies ultimately trade places. But here David understands that he's in trouble. Notice what they do. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. He is the king of Israel, and they want to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They take pleasure in lies. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. And so you see, David knows what it is to be pursued, whereby his physical life is in danger. But it's almost as though when David is being pursued by people who bless him with his mouth, but actually curse him inwardly, this is in a sense more problematic for David. That people who come after you with smiles and kisses, but as you turn, drive the knife into your back, those are the scars that ultimately wound and kill. And so, make no mistake, what David is going through is somewhat traumatic because he's dealing with people who are pretending to be his friends, but he knows they are not. Better someone who says, I do not like you. Then you know where you stand, you move on, you may never have to talk to them again. Far better that than someone who says, I love you, but I actually really hate you. And one commentator speaks about how evil is actually ruthlessly competitive. It's attracted to weakness to give a last push to whatever is leaning or tottering. And so they want to push him and push him and push him. And so he comes crumbling down. How is David to respond to this? He responds by waiting for God in silence and speaking of who God is to him. Notice what he does in verses 5 to 8. It's a sort of exhortation to himself and also to God's people to trust in him. So verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. David is doing something here that you need to master if you're going to lead a productive Christian life. What is he doing? It's the holy art of soliloquy. And you will find this is one of the most important things you can develop as a Christian. What is soliloquy? It's basically the act of speaking your thoughts aloud to yourself, whether there's anyone present or not. I, uh, as a young man, knew that if I went to the store with my mom, I was going to probably get something. And if I went to the store with my dad, I was likely to be doing push-ups or uh, paying him somehow. And so one day my mom goes, I'm going to the store. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to sneak into the trunk of the forerunner and go with her. And she won't know I'm there. And as she's driving off to the grocery store, I realized my mom's having a really good conversation with herself. And I was thinking, uh-oh, what am I going to do now when I get out? And I can't say, hey, mom, I'm in the back listening to your conversation. How am I going to get out? And it's going to be all normal between us because she was having a mighty good conversation. 
Well, it wasn't such a big deal because some people, they just excel in just having a good conversation. And uh, she got out and there I was. And that was my first experience of soliloquy. And I'll never forget that because, you know, you grow up and you, you read Shakespeare and you read Hamlet and then you go through that majestic scene, to be or not to be, that is the question, you know. Do you keep on living in this world with all of its troubles and all of the vagaries of life or would it be better to die? But who knows what could be on the other side? And so you have this question, to live or not to live, to be or not to be. And you ask yourself the question, well... In the Psalms, especially, you find the psalmists are always talking to themselves. They're always speaking to themselves about their situation. And in Psalm 42, we read earlier, Why are you cast down, O my soul? So next time you hear someone talking to themselves, this is actually... From the Psalms, you're supposed to talk to yourself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? You ask yourself the question. And it forces you to answer it. And you can either answer it by living in this world through your own eyes, or you can live in this world through the eyes of God. And so, speak to yourself by going through the lenses that God has given you to interpret this world. And so the psalmist will say, hope in God. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's in Psalm 103. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you will know this from his book, Spiritual Depression. One of the chapters, you, you, you only really need to need, read that one chapter where he says that the whole art of Christian living is knowing how to talk to yourself. How often do we speak to ourselves every day, inwardly? How often do we worry about things and plot situations and scenarios and what my friends are going to think or what my family is going to think or what I'm thinking? And we, we think of a thousand different situations. We're always talking to ourselves. And the Scriptures are saying, Talk to yourself, but talk to yourself by falling back on who God is. And that's what David does through this psalm. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Or verse 5, my hope is from Him. Verse 6, again, He is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. See what happens in verse 6 when he talks to himself? What? Look at verse 2. He talks to himself, I shall not be greatly shaken. He continues to talk to himself. What word does he remove? Greatly. I shall not be shaken. Which tells me that in verse 2, he hasn't actually reached the pinnacle of where his faith needs to go. When he says, I shall not be greatly shaken, that isn't a declaration of great faith. That's a declaration of faith, but not great faith. By the time he gets to verse 6, All of a sudden, waiting upon the Lord in silence, confessing who God is to him, he is now able to say, I shall not be shaken. That is an awesome declaration to make before God. I shall not be shaken. Why? Because on God rests my salvation and my glory. You see those last three words I read there? We don't talk like that anymore. My glory We 
don't mind speaking of other things being our glory. I came to church this morning in Surrey and I saw uh, one lady come walking over to me and I thought, well, it was my birthday Friday. She's very happy to see me, going to wish me well. And she comes walking, big smile on her face and walks right past me. And I thought, oh, well, it was Friday, I suppose, but it's Sunday now. It's a matter of historical fact. And there's a new baby there. And oh, the baby. Oh, this little baby. And it looked like a baby. And I thought, we make babies our glory, make our spouse our glory, our children our glory, our convertible our glory, our whatever our glory. David says, God is his glory. God is my glory. God is the one my salvation rests on and my glory. Not God's glory. David's glory is his God as he's declared him to be. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. And so what does he do? This is what he does. He's talked to himself. He's been able to convince himself of who God is to him and he will not be shaken. And so what does he do now? He tells others. And guess what? He's still counseling himself in verse 8, by the way. Trust in him at all times, O people. One of the best things you can do is not only talk to yourself the way God wants you to talk to yourself, but you also talk to others about who God is. And when you are teaching others and exhorting others, you are necessarily always exhorting yourself. If I say to someone, hey, you know, you should really love your wife, do you not think it's also reminding me of that same duty? Talk to yourself and talk to others. Make use of everything that God gives you to be secure in Him. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. Now, isn't it interesting that He is asking others to pour out their heart before God? What are the usual occasions when we pour out our heart before God? What is the context of the psalm? David is under attack. David is experiencing anxiety, stress, heartache. Those are the scenarios in which people usually pour out their heart before God. So God puts David into a situation so that God might draw out of David's heart the things David needs to say about who God is. Let me put this another way. God wants to know what your theology is. So what does he do? Send you off to Westminster Seminary? He could do that. Send you off to the Bavink Book Club at Faith Church? Fine group of individuals, if ever there were. Nah, he could do that. But God really wants to know what your theology is? He is going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to pour out your soul before him, and guess what? He'll find out that you're all Calvinists. That you're all going to call him your salvation. And that he is the one in whom your whole life depends. And that he is the one that you can have confidence in and not yourself. That he's the one who's going to lead you and keep you and preserve you. And that's where your theology comes out. Just as David's does here. But then also notice 
There's another picture he gives us of those who do trust in God. In verses 9 to 12, he actually warns us of a potential pitfall for those who do find themselves in trouble. What is that? Well, he speaks of those who are low estate in verse 9 are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. So you have all of society, you have the rich and the poor, the great and mighty and the lowly and insignificant, and everyone in between, all of humanity, And in the balances, take all of these people in the balances, take everyone in this room right now, in all of your different stages of life, in the balances, let's take you up and weigh you. And you are in the sight of God, lighter than a breath. It's a beautiful way to describe how weak and futile man is in the presence of God. But why does he say this? Because he says in verse 10, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. In other words, when we find ourselves in trouble, a lot of the time our reflex action is not actually to wait upon God in silence, it's to start taking care of matters. And if we have money, that will take care of it. If we don't have money, we need to extort or bribe or steal. We need to do things in order to solve our problems. And David is saying, whether you are rich or poor, do not trust in these vain, empty things. Trust in God at all times. Why? Because in verse 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs not to man. When you take man and weigh them in the balances, they are lighter than a breath. Power belongs to God. Remember Jesus saying, seated at the right hand of power. He describes God as power. Power belongs to God. God is the one who can be your rock and refuge and salvation because He is the powerful God. But He's not just the powerful God. He is the steadfast, loving, powerful God. He's the unchanging, powerful God. He's the unchanging, loving, powerful God. And just in case these wicked people think they will get away with this against David or against anyone else, He reminds them right at the end, for you will render to a man according to his work. They may not get caught in this life. They may not face their judgment in this life, but God one day will render to these according to their work, according to their evil deeds, and they will receive judgment. Well, what can we say by way of application? There are a number of points I wanted to make. I'm probably going to just make one. Can I just get one in just before the one? Call this a theological pet peeve. It's not enough to just say that God is good. It's not enough to just say God is good and God is love. I was with someone this week who uh, just kept saying when matters of morality came up, well, love is love. What does that mean? Love is love. The Psalms don't allow you to just say that God is good. The Psalms just don't allow you to get away with theological cheating. 
The Psalms bring you into an actual real life situation of someone, but when they describe who God is, they go to great lengths to tell you that God is powerful, but notice he's powerful in contradistinction to all of humanity, that when you weigh humanity, they're lighter than a breath, that God has steadfast love, but that God is also the one who is our salvation, our rock, our refuge. That's why God is love. But also notice verse 8. The verse there is, I think, worthy of a tattoo on your soul. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Trust in Him at all times. When Abraham had to go and sacrifice Isaac upon the altar before God, what could he have read? Trust in Him at all times. When Moses had to choose between the pleasures of Egypt and suffering with God's people, what could he have said? Trust in Him at all times. When Daniel's life was in jeopardy, what could he have said? Trust in Him at all times. The Hebrew midwives, trust in Him at all times. Joseph in the pit, trust in Him at all times. David fleeing from Absalom, trust in Him at all times. David fleeing from Saul, trust in him at all times. Mary looking at her son crucified before her very eyes, trust in him at all times. Philip, how are we going to feed the 5,000? Trust in him at all times. All times. Your children, they, they're making life difficult for you. Trust in Him at all times. Your work situation is crippling you. Trust in Him at all times. Your friends abandon you or forsake you. What do you do? You trust in Him at all times. Your spouse doesn't love you the way that you had hoped he or she would love you. Trust in Him at all times. There is never a time when you are not commanded to trust in God. Never. In any situation, when you're standing upon the mountain looking over the beauty of creation and how God has blessed you, trust in Him at all times. But when you're lying in the hospital bed, whether you have a day or a week left to live, trust in Him at all times. And tell yourself, speak to yourself, get engaged with yourself through the eyes of God in His Word. Trust in Him at all times. And Jesus, the Lord of glory, going to the darkest place on earth, going to hell as it were, going where He would be mocked and ridiculed and left for dead and stabbed and abandoned. Do you think that He did not at that point need to also believe? Trust in Him at all times. All times. And this verse may save your life. This verse, going through the next day of your life, the next week, the next month, the next year, every single person in here may need to come back to this, hopefully daily, but especially where you go, what am I going to do? And you're going to remember, trust in Him, the powerful God, who has steadfast love, trust in Him at all times. And when we've been there 10,000 years, shining like the sun, 
Trust in Him at all times. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we will talk to ourselves as You desire for us to talk to ourselves. That we, as soon as we think of ourselves, should be drawn to You. And then as soon as we are drawn to You, we can truly think of ourselves. Oh Lord, help us all to engage in that holy art of talking to ourselves as you would have us and trust in you at all times. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.